He is risen. He is risen indeed. Greetings on this Easter Sunday to you, wherever you are listening. We are again thankful that you have joined us in the fellowship of the Spirit to rejoice in our Lord, Savior, and King, Jesus Christ. This time has given us reason to be somber in our mood because of the loss of so many lives worldwide and in the U.S., But it is especially in the midst of this sadness and fear that the message of Easter morning rings true and gives us hope and peace like never before in many of our lifetimes. And so this morning, as you are worshiping in your home or maybe joining remotely with others over an online platform to listen together, I want us to fully realize that Easter and the resurrection of Christ that we celebrate today is not hindered or lessened because of what we are experiencing. It is exactly because of what we are experiencing, that we should be rejoicing all the more in Christ's resurrection. So please join us as we take this time to celebrate Christ, his resurrection, and the resurrection that he has secured for those that are his own. Our readings today come from Isaiah 12 and Luke 24, and then we will hear from one of our elders, Dallas Cole, as he shares a pastoral prayer. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Luke. Chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were, frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to tell them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty God, who inhabits eternity, the universe is your temple. You sit enthroned forever. Nothing exceeds your power. Nothing is too great for you to do. Nothing is too good for you to give. Father, many of us are tired 
and we ache for the return of our King who sits at your right hand. Holy Trinity, thank you for the restorative hope of our Christ's resurrection. We are tired of living in two worlds, wrestling with ourselves because we are double-minded, living in moments where we are fully submitted to you and in moments where we foolishly fight for the reins of control because we forget just how small that we are. King Jesus, we, like the Apostle Peter, have our own agendas when it comes to the mission of your restoration. Help us to loosen our grip on the temporal things that frustrate us, to be disciplined enough to seek you first, to live lives that reflect our submission to you. Increase our hunger and thirst for God's word so that we may live a life that reflects the great Shema. Help us to be introspective during this time where the comforts of our rhythmic schedules have been disrupted. Give us endurance in this time where we are disconnected to each other in proximity. I pray that this time apart would increase our desire to be together. Help us to see where we've taken this for granted in the past. In your name, Jesus, we ask these things. For you are the blessed King who comes in the name of the Lord, and you bring peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna. We shout to you in praise and adoration. In your name, amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. In a recent conversation over the phone, I heard someone from our congregation say that this doesn't feel like Easter lately, rather, it feels like Groundhog Day. Now, for those of you whose minds are more holy than mine and are not filled with movie references, that is referring to an old Bill Murray movie where he repeats the same day over and over again, as if stuck in a never-ending loop. Now, Many of you, I am sure, are starting to feel that same way during the quarantine that is happening in the majority of your homes. I have found in my own experience that this begins to cloud things and morph things into one big blob of memories and experiences. Everything runs together and it's a bit disorienting. And so it's by God's providence and grace that I think we've been looking at the gospel according to Mark, in which Mark is helping us hear and see clearly over the last few weeks. Last week especially, we saw the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida as a preview of the spiritual vision provided by Christ. He revealed the fact that his glorification would be preceded by suffering, betrayal, rejection, death, and resurrection. Only then would he be glorified. These calls to hear clearly from God's word and see clearly God's mission, plan, and salvation through Christ have been timely to say the least. This theme continues even this morning with our next section of Mark and how it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. In our text this morning, we will be looking at the transfiguration of Christ and how it dovetails into the section from last week regarding Jesus, his death, and resurrection. The transfiguration is included in this place within Mark's gospel as a preview of the majesty of Christ that would be revealed at the resurrection, that through death, Jesus would attain forgiveness of our sins, but then through his resurrection, Jesus would attain the glory that only he can have as king of the kingdom of God. The author will show us the resurrection would bring clarity for the disciples as to the mission of the Messiah. 
And my hope for us today is that the resurrection that is previewed in the transfiguration will also give us clarity in our own lives, regardless of what is happening around us. So let's turn our eyes heavenward to our King as he speaks through his divinely inspired word. Let's hear what the Spirit would say to the church this morning as we look at the clarity provided by the resurrection. That's the title for the sermon today, The Clarity Provided by the Resurrection. Let's begin by reading our text, but beginning back in chapter 8, verse 27, so that we can gain the context. Let's start in Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The first thing that we see this morning is that the transfiguration is a mysterious preview of Christ's glory. You can write that down as the first main point today. The transfiguration is a mysterious preview of Christ's glory. This event is one of the hardest to unpack and teach because out of all of the events in the Gospels, 
and maybe even in the New Testament, there is not a strong consensus on what is occurring here. One of the most difficult pieces of this text is that it seems at first glance to be an unfulfilled prophecy. Verse 1 of chapter 9 is a grammatically difficult passage, and so it sounds like Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God will come in power before some of you die. This seems to many to be unfulfilled because they naturally think of the kingdom of God in power as Christ's second coming that has yet to occur, where he comes to summarily put down all other governments and nations so that he can rule and reign. And yes, that has not occurred yet. But isn't it ironic that this is how many today interpret this passage when it was also how the disciples of Jesus' day interpreted the idea of the coming kingdom in power? In fact, that has been the thing that has held them back from understanding what Christ is teaching them. They have been waiting for power to be shown through a military-type conquest, and Jesus keeps letting them know that they are missing the point. And so commentators, pastors, and theologians have tried to figure out what this is pointing to. Is the transfiguration pointing to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers? To the ascension? To the resurrection? What? But in point of fact, the power of the kingdom is actually found in the resurrection of Christ from the dead as he is enthroned on high. That is the primary thing it is pointing to. Now it captures all of the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement. But let me show you why I believe that it's primarily focusing on the resurrection. Remember all the way back in Mark 1.15? Mark 1.15 said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came preaching that the kingdom was at hand. Now, how could he know that? Well, because he was the king, as we've been seeing throughout the first eight chapters of Mark. Remember that a kingdom is made up of three things. A king, ruling, a people. A king, a people, and the reign he has over them. So the kingdom simply needed the formality of the king being enthroned and given rule and power. In Christ's death, he paid the necessary atoning sacrifice, taking on the sin of all mankind, receiving the wrath of the triune God upon himself. But this was merely the beginning of the enthronement, not the full glory. It was three days later, as Christ resurrected from the dead and emerged from the tomb, that he was glorified. The resurrection was the power that proved that Christ had emerged victorious over the adversary of God, the kingdom of darkness, and the death that it brings. It was in the resurrection that Jesus proved that there was literally no earthly or divine power that could overcome him. It was in the resurrection that he proved he is the majestic authority of God incarnate. How do we know this for sure? Well, look with me at some scriptures in which the apostle Paul, our great teacher, interprets for us. First, look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 of Romans 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, focus on verse 4 there, where it says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. That focuses the power in the resurrection, the kingdom coming in power. Second, look forward with me at Philippians chapter 3. Go to the right a bit in your Bible and go to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection." and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A focus there on verse 10, the power of his resurrection. Why was this resurrection from the dead so powerful? It was his universal and cosmic declaration that he was and is God incarnate, and that he had dealt once and for all with sin and death, and emerged as enthroned king over the kingdom of God. The strongest power in this world that is broken is death. It's what causes fear and all that flows out of it for every man, woman, and child. And yet Jesus, in the power of his resurrection, overcame it. The resurrection was the point at which he became a king, reigning over a people. Now this was so beautifully captured by Paul in his prayer for the saints in the local church at Ephesus. Go back to the left in your Bible with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If we focus on verse 19 there, it says that the power towards us to, uh, who believe is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. What is it that displayed the greatness of God's power and might? It was the working out of Christ's resurrection from the dead so that he might be enthroned as king over all. But all of this came with 2020 hindsight after the resurrection. What must it have been like in the moment for the disciples, especially Peter, who speaks here? Well, let's go back to Mark 9, and we will see our second main point this morning. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The resurrection brought clarity 
to the transfiguration. The resurrection brought clarity to the transfiguration. Let's make note of some of the signals and symbols used in this story to help us understand what Mark was trying to convey to the first century audience as they listened, and why it was important to them. First, let's look at the structure and the form of the text. In Mark 8 and 9, there are bookends that surround the transfiguration that speaks of Christ's death. In Mark 8.31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Then in Mark 9, 30 through 32, there is another statement of betrayal, death, and resurrection that is very similar, but the disciples don't get it. As it says in verse 32, they do not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. In between this, there are two narrative events the transfiguration and the healing, freeing, and raising from the dead of a boy who has an unclean spirit and is mute and deaf. Now, he's not actually dead, but he's pictured as dead in this narrative, and that's why it's interesting. We'll look at that next week. But in this narrative account, Mark pictures all of humanity before the truth of Christ's resurrection is provided to us. Notice the words used in verses 26 and 27. It says, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the unclean spirit came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The wording is very particular there. This is the same wording that Jesus uses in verse 9 of chapter 9, speaking of the fact that the son of man would rise from the dead. Mark is helping us to see something clearly here. In order for the transfiguration to make sense, it requires the resurrection, Christ's rising from the dead. The resurrection, if you will, is the decoder pin to the mystery of the transfiguration. And the transfiguration previews for the disciples and for the hearers of Mark's gospel, the resurrection and glorification of Jesus. The disciples experienced something amazing here in the transfiguration. They were most likely extremely confused and disheartened to hear that Christ would need to be betrayed and killed. This event gave them an understanding of the power and enormity of Christ, but it still left them confused until, that is, the resurrection. That is why Jesus told them, Say nothing to anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He wanted that to be an event that helped them understand what happened at the transfiguration so that they could proclaim the truth of who he was and his gospel correctly. Well, second, let's not only look at the form of the text, but let's look at the story within the context of the whole canon of scripture. There are two interesting Old Testament stories that have incredible bearing on this story, especially since the two Old Testament figures mentioned are Moses and Elijah. What is interesting about them is that they had similar experiences to what Peter, James, and John were about to experience. So let's look back at their stories. First, look back with me to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, starting in verse 15. In Exodus 24, it says something very familiar to our text in Mark chapter 9. 
Exodus 24:15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered in the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. There's familiarity here that seems like Mark is trying to get our minds back to this idea of the people of God meeting with God on a high mountain. Tradition states that it is a smaller mountain upon which the transfiguration occurred called Mount Tabor, but most likely it was actually Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel. It's near Caesarea Philippi in the north part of Israel. And this mountain is meant to take the reader's mind back to Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it's also known. Well, then skip forward with me in Exodus to Exodus 33.18. Exodus 33.18, and we're going to read into 34.8. In Exodus 33.18, it says this, Moses said to God, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Here Moses, the most powerful and authoritative prophet of God, the one that was the intermediary to bring the law to God's people, was able to see the glory of God on a high mountain and was humbled at his presence. He was disheartened at the sin of the people and felt alone in pursuit of God. As he stood on the rock, God protected him so that Moses might see God and yet live and gain encouragement that God was with him. That's the experience of Moses that Mark harkens our mind back to. Well, then we can also look at the story of Elijah. Turn with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 8. In 1 Kings 19, 8, Reading through the first part of verse 13, it says this, And Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, or Sinai, the mount of God. So he goes to the same place as Moses. 
There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Sounds very familiar to what Jesus would be feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, Yahweh, the Lord, passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Here, Elijah, the prophet of God and the most powerful and authoritative figure of God at the time, is fleeing from evil Queen Jezebel. He finds refuge on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and feels as though he is alone in fighting for Yahweh amongst the sinful people. So God, similarly to Moses, encourages him in the midst of feeling alone by showing him his presence. With these stories in mind, we go back to Mark 9 and we ascend the mountain with James, John, and Peter, expecting to see God. Like Moses and Elijah, there must have been fear and sadness at the fact that Jesus would need to die. They, like Moses and Elijah, must have been wondering how the power of God could be shown. So like Moses and Elijah, they're given a chance to view the face of God. But this time it is made plain because unlike Moses and Elijah, these three disciples would see God face to face in his incarnate form as his son, Jesus the Messiah. We see in the form and in the Old Testament and canonical context, clarity of this transfiguration. But third, let's look at the details of the transfiguration in light of the resurrection of Christ to come. And we see four major details. First, we see Jesus transform before them as indicated by his clothes becoming radiant and intensely white. And Mark says that this could not be achieved by anything on earth. Throughout the Bible, this is associated with being in the presence of the Holy God. In fact, in the section of scripture from Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 that we looked at last week, discussing the Son of Man and his being given dominion by God, it indicates that the Ancient of Days another name for the Father God, had clothing white as snow, indicating holiness and purity. Jesus had been transformed in a way that they were seeing him as he would be seen in the fullness of his resurrected glory. Sin and the impurity of this world would be done away with and he would be seen in full holiness as the incarnate God. Second, we also see Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus, subservient to him, Peter naturally believes Jesus would be like one of them or perhaps subservient to them. So he goes and says, I want to make three booths or tabernacles, but that's quickly rebuked even by God the Father's voice. They were there, all of them, under the authority of Jesus. Third, we see a cloud overshadowing them. Throughout the Old Testament, this is used to capture the presence of God among his people. And when the cloud fills the tabernacle or the temple, we know that God is present. It's always attached to the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. And in this case, it is Jesus as the incarnate God that stands among them. Lastly, we read that God the Father spoke, declaring Jesus to be the one to whom all should listen. 
This is reminiscent of much in the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy 18, 18, where God promised a final and ultimate prophet who would come to be God's voice. Jesus is the prophet greater than Elijah, greater than Moses. He is the king. He alone is the one to whom we submit. All of these, the structure of the passage, the canonical context of the passage, and the details of the passage, as seen through the resurrection, bring clarity to the truth that in the transfiguration, the disciples were seeing Christ in a preview of his glory to come after death. Unfortunately, the disciples still don't get it in the moment. Peter thinks that this must be the fullness of the messianic kingdom, and so he asks if he can build tabernacles for each of them. Then the disciples, as they head down the mountain, ask, If this is not the kingdom, then what must come first? What about Elijah returning? They did not fully understand the mission of the Messiah. And so Christ told them in Mark 9, uh, verse 9, that they were to keep silent until they saw the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, like the one that was framed in the form of Elijah, John the Baptist, would go to his death at the hands of rulers but then he would resurrect. And Jesus knew that without the resurrection, the disciples would not fully understand his mission. Like us, the disciples wanted to know what is next and when the fullness of glory was to come, but it would take the resurrection to give them clarity. Turn with me to our second reading uh, from earlier today in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In verse 8, it says that they remembered his words, that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. This clarity, along with the power of the Holy Spirit given to them some forty days later, allowed them to finally see the truth of who Christ was and who they were to be. Look with me at that happening in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2.32, we hear Peter's first sermon. And Peter says this in Acts 2.32, This Jesus God raised up, or resurrected, And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It was in this full process of the resurrection, glorification, and ascension of Christ that the disciples finally understood. Clarity finally came. The resurrection gave them clarity that they could look back on his words in Galilee and all that occurred at the transfiguration, and they could see the truth that Jesus was not just a rabbi, not just a teacher. He was the Son of God, resurrected to a position of king over the kingdom of God. He was and is sovereign Lord over all those who repent from their sins and trust in him for the promise of resurrection and eternal life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter spoke to the church regarding the transfiguration and how it was a foreshadow of the majestic enthronement of Christ. He says this in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The resurrection brought great clarity to the disciples, so that they could see the fullness of who Jesus is, And this has not changed from that day until now. Clarity is still gained through the resurrection. And that is the final point I want to present to you today. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Clarity is still gained through the resurrection. We see that the resurrection of Christ brought clarity for the disciples. But then let's think about the clarity the resurrection still brings. For the first century audience to whom Mark wrote this gospel, they were in the midst of persecution and the great possibility of being martyred for their faith and allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King over and above Caesar. When fear crept in over them and they wondered what practical application the death of Jesus had for them in the midst of their current suffering, they could recall the truth of Jesus' words at Caesarea Philippi that those who are disciples must deny themselves be willing to take up their cross and give their own life in allegiance to Christ when asked. To do so would require amazing courage. And so Mark gave them that courage as they were given a preview of the resurrection in the narrative of the transfiguration. That even though Christ himself at this point in the story would need to face death, he could do so in full assurance of the glory to come. They too, the original audience, could take solace in the fact that even though they were facing death, they had the full assurance of the resurrection and glory of eternal life to come. How pertinent for us in the midst of a pandemic that is destroying lives the world over. What can we use to meet the fear and anxiety many feel about the possibility of death? We can gain the same clarity that the disciples did. You see, we have nothing to fear because Christ has overcome sickness and death. Even if we were to be consumed, death has no hold on us if we are in Christ. We are not restricted from meeting because of fear. We are not meeting out of submission to our governing authorities. Fear is not in question. 
We have nothing to fear, because again, Christ has overcome sickness and death. If the Lord should tarry, death will come for each of us. But we need not fear it, because the resurrection has opened our eyes to the fact that if Christ is our Lord, Savior, and King, we have nothing to fear. Instead, we have an eternity of life with Christ and fellowship with one another to look forward to. The resurrection brings even more clarity than that, though. Let me conclude by giving you three other ways in which the resurrection gives us clarity and in which we can rejoice. First, in the resurrection, we find clarity of meaning. Clarity of meaning. Without the resurrection, life doesn't really make sense. Suffering doesn't make sense. If there is no eternity, no God, then it is my estimation that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if we are indeed eternal beings, formed in God's image, meant for an eternity with him, temporarily subjected to futility, then this life makes a lot of sense. This is not all there is, but merely a glimpse of what will be one day. We glimpse eternity and God in all the good we find in love, sacrifice, relationship, and fellowship. In this worldview that includes resurrection, suffering also makes sense. Suffering, sickness, and death exist because we have chosen to operate outside of God's good will and provision. But one day, mankind's hearts cry that this too would end, it will come as the resurrection and judgment to come will put an end to death, sin, and hell. Secondly, in the resurrection, we find clarity not only of meaning, but also clarity of who God is. Atheism and agnosticism are growing belief systems in the world. Agnosticism is the belief that everything is relative and we can't know anything. Atheism is the idea that God doesn't exist, that there is no God. But the reality is that the resurrection of Jesus throws a monkey wrench in both systems. If a man named Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds of witnesses that were then willing to die horrific deaths of martyrdom to speak to its validity, then we must contend with that and recognize that Jesus was truly God incarnate and Lord. No other explanation suffices to explain what happened 2,000 years ago. Dear listener, if you are one that has been listening today and you realize you have been operating in a cloudy notion that there might be a God, but you don't know and maybe don't care who or what God is, or maybe you're a person who's never even thought about it and for some reason you're listening today, or maybe you're a person who believes you've been following Jesus because of the faith of your parents or you exist in a general moralism, for any of you, I want to challenge you today with the question of what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead? How do you explain that a man crucified, stabbed, bleeding from his side, and known to be dead and buried, was able to resurrect and be seen by hundreds of his disciples in complete health? The reality is that there is no other explanation other than the fact that Jesus was and is God incarnate and that he conquered death, sin, and hell through his resurrection. He sits waiting for the day of his return in which he will judge the living and the dead and bring those that are his into an eternity with himself. And so, dear listener, I beg of you, if you don't already know Christ today, give your life to him now. Repent from your sins. 
and proclaim to him that you submit to his authority as king and that you accept his sacrifice as savior. Right where you're at right now, proclaim that in prayer. And then as you are able, even if it is just remotely for now, join us or another gospel-centered church in fellowship as we worship Christ as his church. If you want help in that, or you want to talk to anyone, please feel free to email me at hans at missionsalem.com. And I would love to talk with you about what it is to become a disciple of Christ. Well, third, not only does the resurrection bring clarity of meaning and clarity of who God is, it also brings clarity of who we are. We are disciples of Jesus, called to give our very lives in proclaiming the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our earlier reading from Philippians 3, 10 through 11, Paul reminds us that we are those that will share in the suffering in this life, becoming like him as we give ourselves over to death, as we wage war against sin in our own lives and in the world that surrounds us. But then we resurrect from the dead just as Christ did. His life purchased the rights for those of us who love him and submit to him to be seen as justified and righteous, washed in the blood of Christ, resurrected from the dead. Who am I? Who are you? Well, if you are in Christ, you and I are resurrection bound. We have nothing to fear. We have a purpose. We have a meaning and a cause for rejoicing. Even in the midst of the sense of loss, we feel now in the midst of coronavirus restrictions. We do mourn, but we do not mourn as those without hope because we know that one day we will be joined with the Lord in resurrection to eternal life, never to be broken apart again. This should bring us great rejoicing and celebration today. Those friends, those family members, the fellowship of the Spirit that you are mourning because you cannot have it. That separation is conquered in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And his resurrection assures us that one day we will be united with him and one another for all eternity. It is because of these truths that on this Easter Sunday we can join with the prophet Isaiah in proclaiming, We will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with us, your anger turned away that you might comfort us. Behold, God is our salvation. We will trust and we will not be afraid. For the Lord God is our strength and our song. He has become our salvation. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That day on the holy mountain, Peter, James, and John got to see the truth of this statement. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Mission Fellowship, your application today is to rejoice in the resurrection and allow the clarity it brings to overwhelm you with courage and peace. Even in the midst of darkness, we have this courage and we have this peace because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And now we want to worship with you even remotely. 
As the restrictions on meeting together happened, the elders at mission made a very purposeful choice to continue doing only audio teachings and to encourage you to lead family worship and singing in your home rather than provide worship music. We made this decision because we wanted to clearly communicate that there is truly no replacement for the gathering of the Lord's people in the local church. In fact, the word church, or ecclesia in the New Testament, has in its origins the idea of the assembly of God's people found in the Old Testament Israelites. And so it is intentional that we feel a lack of that assembly during this time and are compelled to pray that the Lord might bring us back together again as soon as possible. It is a wonderful gift for us to know how much we miss one another and to not have that sensitive wound cauterized by distractions or replacements. But this morning, because it is Easter Sunday, we want to recognize this truth while also celebrating together the fact that Christ has overcome even the restrictions that COVID-19 brings. So as an additional part of worship today, Seth and Daniel Spangle have blessed us by recording four of the songs that we sing on Sundays so that we can sing together as a body. The lyrics to those songs are available online on our website teachings page. You can go into the teaching for today and there will be a file link called Worship Song Lyrics. And then after that, we will sing and then Ryan will bless us with a missional prayer and benediction. And I want to then call us to simply sit in meditation for a few minutes as we finish with an instrumental piece that Kent Irving recorded. It's an instrumental version of Give Me Jesus. As you listen to it, if you're able in the moment with kids running around for some of you, let the peace of God rule your hearts and minds and let the fullness of gratitude fill your heart for what Christ has done for you in providing the assurance of eternal life by his resurrection from the dead. You can pause the teaching now to go and find the song lyrics. And then when you're ready, unpause the recording and the songs will be next. Mission Fellowship, may the Lord deeply bless all of us in this time of worship as we celebrate his resurrection. Oh, no. 
love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes a whole earth with holy thunder who leaves us breathless in our wonder the king of
sing for all that you've done for me. Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. So let 
perfect spotless righteousness great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of praise the king of glory and of praise Lord we are so thankful for the resurrection In it, we find your faithfulness. Your son, in his kingdom inaugurating work, was obedient to you and represented you perfectly. And in the face of suffering, contempt, and all that evil could throw at him, he trusted your faithfulness. His trust was not misplaced. His soul was not abandoned. Help us to develop this same trust in you. Let us fill our minds and our hearts with your words. Let us share them with one another so that in our dark nights, we will also know that you will not abandon us. In the resurrection, we see you have conquered the great enemy death. In your reign, Jesus, you are putting all enemies under your feet. We long for the day when death is destroyed. And until then, we know that our own death is not the end. Through being born again, being made a new creation in you, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, we have assurance that like Christ, we will not stay in the grave. Through trust in your power, help us to not fear death any longer. In the resurrection, we see that our hope is not only in this world. This world has been and will continue to be filled with strife and with hard labor and with broken hearts. But this world is not the end of the story. With the same power that raised Christ, he will raise us into a life that is filled to overflowing with you. Help us to make our lives today on earth as they will be in the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Mission family, keep praying for one another, keep reaching out to one another, and proclaim to one another like our Lord's disciples on that Easter morning, he is risen. All of it with the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.